when you work in procurement in any kind of way, what you do matters a lot because what you do is how you're spending taxpayers' money and how you're getting value for the crown. And are you doing it in a way that upholds our values? Welcome to another episode of the Supply Chain Ambassador Podcast. I'm your host, Bruno, helping you navigate the world of supply chain in a fun and engaging way. When I think of public service procurement, I picture a transaction between a government department and a private sector supplier. But what if the transaction is between different levels of government? How does public sector procurement function in those scenarios? To help me understand that, please welcome Danielle Oban. Danielle has been working at the Treasury Board Secretariat in the Procurement Policy Division since 2013. She has been the Director of Strategic Policy since 2017. She is responsible for the development of new procurement policies and guidance materials, including the Directive on Government Contracts and Real Property Leases in the Nunavut Settlement Area. Danielle has worked in strategic policy positions at Veteran Affairs, Public Safety, and the Privy Council Office. Danielle holds a Master's in Arts in Public Administration and a Bachelor of Arts in Canadian Studies from Queen's University. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, thank you. Can you describe your journey and how you got to your current role? Um, yeah, I think I kind of fell into it because I'm not, um, I'm not primarily a procurement officer. That's not kind of how I grew up, so to speak, in the public service. I'm, I've more been on the, the policy development and the strategic policy side of things. So I had worked uh, in program sector on defense issues, and I worked closely with my colleagues in, in, who worked on PSPC and on procurement issues as well. And when they had some openings in the procurement policy area, I was looking for a way to come back to TBS and they brought me in and I've been really lucky that I've been really able to kind of grow, you know, from a, from an EC7 up to a director in my division and in my sector, just and having new challenges along the way, you know, how to, how to deal with the treasury board part of procurement, but also like understand the policies better and start working with the community in terms of, you know, drafting and consulting on them. So, um, yeah, my knowledge of procurement and how I got here really just kind of comes from, it comes from the community and learning from them and, um, and learning how to write about procurement as opposed to really doing procurement the way a real procurement officer does. <laughs> And we do have quite the great community. Why is the work you do so important? Um, I think it's important because, you know, Treasury Board, Secretariat, and, you know, our rules, they kind of, they apply government wide. So they kind of they set the frame for how public servants do their work. And that might be in the realm of, you know, people policies or financial policies. And in my case, it's how we buy things and it's how we buy things fairly and openly and transparently. I, I think it matters because like, when you work in procurement in any kind of way, what you do matters a lot because what you do is how you're spending taxpayers' money and yeah. how you're getting value for the crown. Mm -hmm. And are you doing it in a way that upholds our values? And so I think it's important that the rules we set 
are consistent with those values, but also that they enable the community to do the good work it needs to do in the time they need to do it and be able to support government's priorities. Yeah. If our administration is getting in the way, then our policies aren't working. We need to mm-hmm. kind of streamline and make them better. So that's what I've been lucky enough to do for the last six or so years. And, and I think that's important. Sounds exciting. What would you say are some misconceptions about the work that you do? People assume, I think, that at Treasury Board Secretariat, that I am the Treasury Board. And I am not the Treasury Board. Treasury Board is a group of ministers. I'm not. (laughs) No, Treasury Board is a group of ministers, and ministers get to make decisions about funding, about contracting approvals, about policy rules. I can't, from where I sit at Treasury Board Secretariat, say to you, no, that part of the policy doesn't apply to you. You don't have to worry about coming to Treasury Board. You have my approval. You have my blessing. That's not worth the paper it's written on. I'm just a public servant like anybody else. So um, we often will get questions like, can TBS just tell me in my department that I can do, you know, X, Y, Z, or that I can spend this money? And we really can't do that. Um, If it's something that needs the approval of ministers, we only have one way to do that, and that's through Treasury Board submission. Um, And we at the Secretariat, we can give you advice on how to get there, but we can't give you the approval and the authority that you need. We don't have it to give. Wow. What are contractual arrangements? So contractual arrangements, they're a lot of things. You know, they can have different names. Some departments will call them a memorandum of agreement or an MOU or a letter of agreement or a collaborative arrangement or all kinds of different terms. But essentially... The way we define it in the Directive on the Management and Procurement and the way we've kind of previously defined it in contracting policies, it's basically a a written arrangement to procure goods and services for payment or other consideration that's subject to Treasury Board contracting limits. And that's kind of one of the key elements. Um, It's signed by a contracting authority or some kind of representative of the government. And it's with um, a government entity or international organization or some, some kind of public entity. Mm-hmm. So you, you would not have necessarily a contractual arrangement, for example, with a private sector company, but you might have one, for example, with the government of Ontario or the UN, or mm-hmm. um, even in some cases as a university. But they really depend on what you're doing, what you're getting back from it, and who it's with. Okay. What are some key considerations for contractual arrangements? So generally speaking, um, you know, they're not contracts in the true sense, but they're, you know, in terms of being like a legally binding agreement that you could challenge in court. They are generally not legally binding. But again, that's because it's who it's with. Usually mm-hmm. they are with some other, as I mentioned, level of government, some other public entity where either you might not have like the jurisdiction, for example, to take them to court. Like, how are you going to take, you know, the government of France to court over, a, a you know, not living up to the contract that you have with them? Like, it, it just it just doesn't work. So really what you have with them is kind of a, a non-legally binding contract. Um, and so we, we in policy, we felt it was important that we define a bit further in policy what we meant by a contractual arrangement, give it a bit of a different, more general term. So that's what you see in the policy and in the new directive as well. I think that the key characteristics, like they're they're generally non-competitive because you generally can't compete. You know, you can't exactly have like the government of Ontario and Saskatchewan compete for a particular 
you know, good or service that you're looking for. You usually have to go with the individual you're working with for some, some reason. They're typically relatively low risk because again, you're working usually with another government agency, for example. So generally speaking, you're, you're not dealing with like some brand new company or brand new technology. You're dealing with somebody very, very well established. Yeah. And, and this is where um, it gets tricky is you may need to seek and where I think there was, a, you know, used to be a fair bit of misunderstanding. Um, just because you call something an MOU doesn't mean you can sign it up to any level of, mm-hmm. you know, dollar value or delegation. You may need to seek Treasury Board approval for something. And for a long time, uh, we use the non-competitive limits for that. So, you know, you'd have very small, like $100,000 agreements for, say, vaccines with, you know, immigration or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um needing to come to treasury board which in the grand scheme of things is not super complicated for a big department mm-hmm. but because of the contracting policy requiring tb authority for for contractual arrangements it meant that even very small things were having to come to the board so it really depends on the situation it depends on the nature of the other party the intent like because they often get mixed up with like grants and contributions or transfer payments to other levels of government. Mm-hmm. But really, if the crown is getting something in return, you know, you're, you're, they're putting money out or they're putting some kind of consideration out there, getting a service or good or, or some kind of some, some kind of consideration back again, you're not really in the space of a grant or contribution anymore. You're mm-hmm. likely more in the contractual space. And then you maybe need to start treating it a little bit more through your approvals and authorities like a contract. I see. Can you provide an example of how a contractual arrangement was used? So again, this is back to where I'm. My my procurement knowledge is theoretical and not always practical, because you know we in Treasury Board Secretariat don't do a lot of actual contracting, um, but we do get asked a lot about what other folks are doing. So mm-hmm. we've seen examples like snow plowing contracts for Parks Canada, where they have roads that go through a park that goes across provincial lines. Or, or outside the park and involves a highway in the province. And so they need an arrangement with the province to be able to plow those roads. Mm-hmm. Or you see them in like policing where building a headquarters or something that might be shared with the provincial police force. How you set up the, con- the contracting parts of that, like who's going to build what, who's going to own what, may need a contractual arrangement to set that up. Mm-hmm. I've seen them very big and I've seen them very small. So large defense uh, for military sales contracts from the U.S. military, those are considered contractual arrangements, mm-hmm. as are, like I said, you know, really small arrangements with a university in another country, for example, that might um, be more like in the tens of thousands as opposed to the hundreds of millions. Mm-hmm. So it really, it really varies. It really depends. But again, it's what is it for? Who is it with? Is the crown getting a benefit back again? Yeah. And and really, you're probably going to need to talk to your legal services about, you know, the who is it with thing, for example, to understand the nature of that organization and whether you're, in fact, doing a contract or a grant or something else. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it really does depend on the situation you're in. What challenges have you faced dealing with contractual arrangements? I think we we get brought at Treasury Board Secretariat, like people bring us the questions of what they don't know how to manage necessarily or where they, they have a challenge, they're not sure. Um, and so often it'll be trying to define 
what a contractual arrangement is and if they in fact have one or if something should be treated as some other kind of financial transaction because often in departments they've got either entirely different parts of the organization who manage those transactions or it will result in perhaps like needing to seek a higher approval level for example so if it's if it's over their treasury board limits if we call it a contractual arrangement but it's not if we call it something else there's a real temptation let's face it to call it something else because it's difficult to do all the work that it takes to get um, an approval through treasury board I think there's challenges in identifying them and certainly in how we've written the guidance to support it, we've been really challenged in writing it in a way that it provides meaningful advice and not just, you know, go talk to your legal or it depends and it's different every time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's That's been really tricky here too, because unfortunately it does depend a whole lot <laughs> on the situation as I was talking about. It, I think it really does eat up a lot of departments time and energy sometimes, which is another real challenge where they're just trying to figure out how to process this thing and do it right. Like nobody wants to run afoul of rules. Nobody's trying to, to mess with anything. They're just trying to like get the right authorities that they need. But it doesn't fit nicely into existing processes. It doesn't fit nicely into one category or another. So then you've got to kind of get everybody comfortable with with a little bit of risk here. No, it doesn't exactly look like this, but I'm going to define it this way, like as a grant, for example, and I'm going to treat it that way. Because I think it's more like that as opposed to, well, no, actually, you've got a lot more elements of a contract in here. So we need to put those usual rigors and those usual authorities onto it. But when it doesn't fit nicely, it's really challenging for everyone concerned. How have you overcome some of these challenges? I think we've... I think we've gotten better over time um, with providing more consistent advice to the questions we get. So, and, and we've developed guidance that we've, you know, published online and it's been out there since about 2015. So, but that really came from like, we were getting lots and lots of questions about this and we were concerned that like, we weren't necessarily giving consistent advice or that it was being kind of heard and understood and taken different ways in different departments. So, I think we've gotten a little better at being more consistent in the advice we provide. And we're working right now, actually, like as we've recently had the new directive on the management of procurement approved, there's new pieces in there around contractual arrangements. And we've heard a lot from the community about places where the guidance is confusing, places where it could be improved, places where it's got mistakes in it. So we're kind of in the middle of, of improving that guidance. but. I'd say overall, just having something you can point people at and uh, just raising awareness, I think has helped um, departments understand a little better that there may be additional requirements or there may be additional authorities they need to seek in these instances. And I know we've seen a few departments where they've actually like taken that guidance on and like built new processes for themselves or how they treat contractual arrangements, which you know, just give it a bit more discipline and a bit more rigor and ensures that, you know, CFO seeing what they need to see, the treasury board seeing what they need to see and so on. Yeah, I did take a look at the published guidance on your website. And I, I especially like the part where it's a it's a graphic image, but it shows it asks a couple of questions. Yeah, it's like a flowchart. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. a flowchart and then asks you further Mm -hmm. leading questions for you to be able to decipher something. And that was kind of our attempt to 
because when we talked about it and we tried to, every time we tried to write down the advice and write down like in this situation, it's always, we could never get there. Um, the closest we came was kind of, what are these considerations and do you have enough of these that it kind of tips you over one way or the other. So is the government of Canada receiving a good or service or construction? You're getting something back. If yes, that's probably some kind of contract or treaty or contractual arrangement. Who's the relationship with? Is it with another level of government? Is it with the private sector? If it's with the private sector, there's probably a way to compete this. I'd even say if it's with certain NGOs, you may be able to compete it because, you know, there's lots of NGOs who offer consulting services, for example, who offer data on particular issues. So you can't assume just because it's not a private sector organization that it must be a contractual arrangement. There may be opportunities to compete. But, you know, if you're talking about the city of Vancouver or something like that, there's only one of those. So you're probably in the world of a contractual arrangement. And then you really need to kind of probably talk to your legal folks about, you know, are there trade agreement implications? Are the GCRs implicated here? Um, then you may need to do, you know, your usual open bidding and whatnot. But again, it's, they're going to want to know who it's with and what's for. Yeah, those kinds of questionings, like we want to kind of improve that and clarify those in the guides we provide. I think we had more commentary and more input on this particular part of our procurement directive. Any issue, anytime we say we're going to come talk about current contractual arrangements, like we get, you know, a huge number of people around the table. And a lot of the time they're trying to understand and they're trying to do it right and set themselves up for success. So yeah, I think uh, I think being able to do that with better guidance and guidance that's driven and built by the community yeah. um, with with us uh, kind of pulling it together is going to be really important. Yeah. How can listeners find out more information? So um, our GCpedia page is always a good one. We've been quiet over the summer because we've been kind of trying to get organized in terms of implementation and, and do some writing. So, cause it's always easier to kind of put material out and get reactions to it in terms of guidance than just saying, well, what do you think about? So we've been doing some homework over the last couple of months, but I think as, as time goes on, you're going to see, we're going to start releasing drafts of new guidance. We have established a working group uh, with many departments who in indicated an interest on the working group for the guidance on contractual arrangements in particular. Um, we'll have a few different working groups on the go for other guidance for the directive on the management of procurement. So stay tuned for those. Those calls are coming regularly. Okay. And, and I'm also at SIPM tomorrow and um, I believe that a deck I've done previously um, at SIPM is available. I think they have a recording of it. So that's another way you can hear me talk about this. I have a copy of that from last year. <laughs> <laughs> I keep all copies of my of the SIPM presentations. <laughs> Any call to action for listeners? Yeah, don't be afraid to kind of to, to come to TBS and ask us those questions. We, we get them all the time and we've got people there to answer. And I, I think we'd really like to have more of that user input to inform guidance that we write and the um, information we're able to provide to support the rules. If we're gonna set the rules, they need to be implementable and useful and not get in your way, but still give that prudence and probity that we need. And the only way we can get that is by having your, your advice and your input so that we can be sure that what we're talking about is in fact um, 
something that can be operationalized in the community. So we're going to continue to offer those opportunities um, at different forums, SIPM and, and others. Uh, there's a, a learning event coming up at the Canada School of Public Service on our new policy directives and on October 19th. Okay. So yeah, lots of uh, lots of opportunities to come hear about it and also to ask us questions and talk to us. And we're always only an email away. Perfect. Well, with that, we've reached the end and conclusion. I will end off with the quote of the day, which is from Montesquieu, who is a French judge, man of letters, historian, and political philosopher. This quote has no uh, relation to our discussion. I just thought it was fun. <laughs> the quote says, Friendship is an arrangement by which we undertake to exchange small favors for big ones. So for me personally, I've had instances where my friends got me a pizza and then asked me to help them move three times in a year. So we all have that friend, don't we? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, be careful when you uh, make arrangements with your friends or other departments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would like to thank everyone for listening and encourage you to please share the podcast among your circles to those who you think will benefit from listening. And I want to thank our guest speaker, Danielle Aubin, for coming on the podcast today and giving us this enlightening discussion on contractual arrangements. Until the next time, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>